Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Welcome to today's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. I am so excited today to have my teacher and mentor as our guest today, and she is truly an expert in functional medicine, in um, empowering people to really take control of their health, and just is just got so much information that I am just going to very quickly move this over to her speaking instead of me. But I would like to take the opportunity today to introduce Tracy Harrison. Tracy is a multifaceted instructor and guide to many people who are in the functional medicine world. She is deeply passionate about transforming healthcare with the powerful combination of functional medicine and effective coaching. Tracy is actually a, a scientist by training, but in many of the career choices she's made, it's taken her into health coaching, and she has now founded a very successful functional medicine training program that is a training program for health coaches, practitioners, medical people, and basically people who are really interested in looking at the science behind functional medicine in the way I interpret it as more of an integrative approach. She is the founder of the School of Applied Functional Medicine. She is a guide and mentor to many practitioners, including myself. So with that said, I want to welcome welcome you, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for that glowing introduction. I appreciate that. I, uh, I deeply um, appreciate the privilege and the honor of being able to educate people. Uh, thank you for uh, setting it up. As I said, I have been um, a wild admirer of yours for a long time. So I'm really excited about being able to bring your knowledge and your experience and your caring to uh, people listening today. As you know, this podcast is geared largely towards women who are struggling with recovering from breast cancer. So I really want to talk about that. But I really think so much of what you teach, it's going to apply to anybody. But I do think there are some unique challenges to people dealing with cancer that I'd like to address today. Okay. So first off, um, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about your background, what brought you into functional medicine? And I think the most pressing question is to talk about what functional medicine is, because a lot of people don't know or they're new to it. And I think that that's kind of an ongoing um, definition. So talk to us a little bit about uh, functional medicine and how you approach it. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think to your point, um, even, even in the practicing functional medicine world, people give all sorts of different explanations about what functional medicine is. But for me, functional medicine is different from conventional medicine. And I, you know me well enough to know that I'm not going to say it's better or worse. It depends on what you're looking for your medicine to do. And I think functional medicine is ultimately about, first of all, looking at the whole system of a person's life. Right? Not just individual body systems, like just the cardiovascular system, or just the hormones, or just uh, the liver, or just the gastrointestinal tract. It, functional medicine honors the concept that everything in the body is interconnected by definition, right? It's all encapsulated here, all being served um, by the same set of lymphatics, the same set of circulation, exposed to the same environment. And we know that there's massive amount of interconnectedness between the body systems. And therefore, the true root causes 
of a particular state of disease or illness may be far distant from um, the downstream complications, right? What's causing a painful big toe may have its root causes in the gut, right? What's causing gastrointestinal dysfunction may have its root cause in the brain and vice versa. Uh, and so it looks at the whole body as a system, but also each independent person's life as a system. And that our net physio physiological state of wellness or illness can be affected by things outside of the body, right? Our environment, you know, our, our access to fresh air or lack thereof, um, the chemicals and toxins in our environment, the mental emotional effects of our relationships, um, our spiritual beliefs, our career, our life fulfillment and happiness, you and I have spoken many times about the notion that the body follows the mind mm -hmm. and that our, our perceptions, um, our beliefs, uh, our reactions to our life affect our physicality. So that's one key tenet of functional medicine. Uh, I think another key pearl is that functional medicine as a practice is much more focused on looking upstream and identifying and addressing the true root causes of uh, dysfunction in the body rather than just trying to ameliorate a symptom or to treat or provide triage uh, for a current medical situation. And, and again, that's not to imply that triage or acute care is not important. Uh, it is and can be uh, life-saving. Uh, my passion is that it's not enough. Uh, we may need emergency care or acute care for various issues, but if we want to really find and sustain wellness, especially on the other side of an illness, it's not enough to combat and, and defeat and fight and win a disease process. We have to do the legwork to go upstream to figure out, well, why did it happen in the first place? What makes me different than the next person? And how do I keep it from happening again rather than just crossing my fingers and hoping for the best? Um, so I think functional medicine is really about the collective um, state of interconnectedness in our body and in our life system. And then I think it, it's particularly focused on looking at upstream true root causes and drivers. Um, you know, two or three women may have the exact same diagnosis for a particular type of cancer, but the collection of factors with regard to genetics, nutrition, uh, chemicals, toxins, stress, um, uh, you know, genetic factors, all sorts of things may be unique and quite different for all three of them. Exactly. And you brought up uh, so many good things that I'd really like to come back and touch on. Uh, actually, my um, entry into functional medicine, uh, I often tell people it was after seeing an oncologist after I'd been through treatment, it was it was one of the scares that is typical for people who have gone through cancer. And I, uh, she said, well, here, take these medications for 10 years, uh, regardless of the side effects. And then uh, come back in a year and we'll make sure symptoms haven't come back. And I was like, so what do I do between now and then to make sure that that answer is no when I come to see you? And she's like, well, not much. And that, so I remember sitting there thinking, taking prescriptions and hoping for the best is not an adequate treatment plan. And I think that that's what um, uh, largely studying with you and, and in my studies in, in functional medicine has really brought about is that there is so much we can do. We don't have to just sit there and be a helpless, you know, recipient or victim of just waiting for this disease to catch up to us. But interestingly enough, I don't know if that's 
what the impression that many cancer patients are being given by traditional medicine. I think it's a very disempowering process. And I, and, and there's so much fear that um, I, I think women are really being shortchanged in that aspect of being empowered to know that there are things that they can do for their health. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree completely. And I, and I think I'll, I'll, you and I discussed this before, the difference between focusing on what disease does a person have as opposed to what kind of person is at play in this disease, right? What, what, are, what is the full collection of dynamics and choices, uh, as I was sharing earlier, that make up this unique individual who happens to be struggling with this particular disease process? And I'm with you around the disempowering part because more and more, especially powered by access to information, uh, even good, credible scientific information on the internet, more and more people want to be empowered, right? They are, they're striving to educate themselves and get inspired about certain lifestyle choices. Uh, and I think more than ever, there is an onus on good, comprehensive medical care to bring people uh, information. And, and I think, to your point, so often very well-intended conventional practitioners simply don't have the knowledge. They don't have the training to understand other contributory factors and the upstream root causes. Not because they're not capable of understanding it. It's just not part of conventional medical training. Right, right. And um, interestingly, in in some of my studies in um, integrative oncology, one of the statistics I read is that cancer is a very large growing segment of our population. And as that demand grows, the actual number of oncologists or specialists are diminishing. So much of the primary care is going to go back to primary care doctors. And while there's a segment of people who feel like a doctor should be able to answer everything about their health in anything, doctors are specialists. And in many ways, may not know a whole lot more than the average person about cancer. They know some generic things, but they don't necessarily know about cancer, or more importantly, empowering someone in dealing with the lifelong decisions that you have to make once you've had cancer, which is really... Mm part of what I'm interested in in doing in this podcast is really empowering women, if they're going to stay with their traditional doctors, to have a sense of questions to ask and how to find out if that practitioner is working for them. And one of the things I'd like to talk to you about is I honestly believe that there's so much fear around cancer. And so many doctors, I hear it all the time, just say to someone, no, don't don't take supplements. It's going to interfere with this or don't do that or don't do that. It's almost a knee-jerk reaction. And I think it can be very hard to bring in functional or integrative medicine. And so I really wanted to talk to you about uh, how to support women who are having that feeling that there's something more and they're not getting it from their doctors. And I know one way is to consider putting together an integrative team with a health coach as part of that. And that's what you specialize in doing, is training health coaches. I'm wondering if you could talk about how someone um, might utilize a health coach and also um, talk about some of the very real things that people can do in the face of cancer in terms of their health and and being proactive and and preventing recurrence. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I think to your point, we're going to increasingly start to see that the medical care team of the future that is effective Uh, And and by efficacy, I mean maximizing not only disease survival, but um, maximizing long-term vitality on the other side of disease. And as you and I well know, those are two different things. 
uh, is going to be a multifaceted healthcare team where certainly there's a place for a conventional view and pharmaceutical interventions and even where appropriate surgery, but there's also a place for nutrition. There's a, uh, a space for uh, movement and exercise. There's a space for self-care uh, and mindfulness uh, training and support because, again, it's all part of our, our body system, right? We know that stress actively creates disease in the body. This isn't even disputed in the conventional med- medical world. Right. So why we throw it out the window when someone's actively struggling with the disease makes no sense to me, right? It's just illogical. But most people, it's sort of a human nature, egoic response. Most people poo-poo what they don't understand, Um, which is a shame uh, because that can leave people feeling like there's no answer, there's no recourse. And really what's the case is there's just no recourse right now with this person, uh, with this practitioner. So I think health coaches can be particularly uh, powerful as a a member of a multifaceted healthcare team because a coach is perhaps uniquely set up to partner long-term with a unique individual patient and helping them to uh, make choices and to implement and sustain the lifestyle that's going to bring them the greatest state of wellness, right? And And when I say wellness, I'm not just talking about what a certain lab marker means. I'm talking about uh, pleasure and happiness and fulfillment and peace of mind. And, you know, what's the point of being alive if we're not experiencing high quality of life? Uh, And and so I think a coach is is really valuable for that because a coach generally is not forcing a certain agenda. A coach is really there to answer questions uh, and educate a person based on their priorities, what they want to learn about in pursuit of their wellness and then um, support them to set their goals and to be accountable to their own goals towards striving uh, for their own wellness. And it gets out from under this whole notion of we abdicate our health to some paternalistic conventional medical practitioner to fix us, which leaves us feeling disempowered, uninspired, scared, to your point. Um, And it really is bringing us back to owning our own health uh, and looking for support in in that ownership um, rather than um, expecting or hoping for someone else to to do it for us. Uh, And I I think a lot of that comes out of the fact that we've made medical science very complicated. Again, it can be a very egoic reaction. This is so complicated. You'd never understand, Deb. So just trust me and do what I tell you. Um, If I've been hit by a car and I'm barely conscious and I might die, then yeah, I want someone to take charge and help me um, to to have triage, right? To to be stabilized. But when we're talking about these long-standing lifestyle diseases that can persist and recur, uh, the answer is not that simple. It can't be. Um, Well, interesting. Doctors, I I take that back. I have talked to many people, they don't have to be doctors, who don't see cancer as a lifestyle disease, which, you know, I I spoke to a a client recently and, and she said, well, I just moved a few months ago. Do you think that gave me cancer? And I was like, well, you know, certainly major events in our lives can be triggers, can send us into a state of, of balance or imbalance, but a typical cancer has been growing for 
10 years or so. It's not one, one event. Um, but, but I, I, I still think that, that people often um, see it as I got a cold. They don't see it as related to lifestyle um, mm. or choices they've made. And I think that that's in terms of educating people around cancer. If you understand that, then, then I think it gives more power to the fact that the, the lifestyle decisions you make absolutely make a difference in terms of your risk factors. It's not one factor. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point, Deb. And in fact, um, it it might surprise some of your listeners, maybe not, they're probably quite savvy knowing you. But uh, even conservative, uh, you know, medical establishments and uh, reports readily cite that depending on the publication from a third to 50% of cancers are lifestyle mediated, Right. right? It is about lifestyle, about whether we have regular movement and exercise, whether we have nutrient-rich diets, whether um, we avoid stress, whether we avoid obvious toxicity, whether we smoke, um, you know, all of these things. This is not woo-woo science anymore. It certainly may have been at one time, but um, this is actually well-acknowledged. Uh, at this point. I don't think it's up for speculation at all. And there's a time and a place for everything. Again, there's a time for triage um, and stabilization. But at some point, there has to become, we have to add to the medical approach a synergy around (coughs) um, full recovery and lifestyle shift and uh, lifestyle maintenance toward the goal of um, not just getting cancer-free, but remaining cancer-free. Well, that's the that's uh, certainly an area that that you know is, is a main area of focus in in the cancer world, and many of our listeners will probably relate to this. They have a cancer bell, you know, you ring on the, your last day of chemo, you ring a bell, and and my thing is, well, what do you do then? You know, ringing the bell as much as I get it, you've been through the, you know very difficult choices and and treatments, and yes, you have every right to feel like you've overcome a major obstacle getting through treatment. It's just not the end. And in our medical system, it is. There is, I think programs are beginning to try to do aftercare, but there really isn't aftercare. It's just, it's like now that treatment is over, go forth, be well, and hope for the best. Um, Well, and I, I so let me get to that. I'm just going to jump onto that train right there. And I know this is some of what you want to explore, but I find that particularly alarming because even when a conventional therapy is chosen and it's very successful, which is wonderful, we know that that, um, certain interventions like uh, chemotherapy or radiation are decimating to the body, right? They have a cost, they have a consequence. And so perhaps there is no time when that lifestyle support is more needed than right on the heels of that type of therapy. Whether you believe in the long-term preventive uh, implications of it or not, just in terms of keeping a person to get back to a state of near normalcy from essentially having been poisoned, not not toward the goal of also poisoning a cancer, um, but the body has been decimated on many levels. Uh, We're nutrient poor. um, We are riddled with oxidative stress. There's been all sorts of cellular damage done. There's been overload to the liver from the toxic byproducts of the therapy. These are all things that the body has to recover from. And we need active support to do that. And if a person goes from that type of therapy right back into a stressful, toxic, a nutrient-poor diet, all these other circumstances they had before, the likelihood of them 
fully recovering is, becomes really challenged. Um, and to me, that's just common sense. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because the first things that I do when, when someone comes in is I'm, I'm looking at their thyroid and adrenal function. We know that those have been, you know, taxed to the limit, beyond the limit, actually. And those are things that, are, that I think, in my experience, this is where a functional approach comes to play because as, as you teach and we talk about in your program all the time, um, doctors are trained for the symptoms, but they don't consider those symptoms. All too often in this world of cancer, whether you um, have just gone through treatment, you're experiencing those deficits, you know, brain fog, exhaustion, peripheral neuropathy, all of those things just go hand in hand for a number of reasons. Um, but but uh, in addition to um, the meds that, that people are often on, the quality of life issues, doctors just dismiss. It's like, well, that's the cost of, you know, being cancer-free. And I think that's what... Um, functional medicine offers. It's not the cost. It doesn't have to be the norm. It doesn't have to be the standard. But too often it is because traditional medicine doesn't look at those things and, and how to intervene. And I think um, if there's anything that, that a functional approach does and what you teach is, is really looking at those things. Um, yeah, I agree. And it, it also gets back to what you were describing before about the power of coaching. And and I want to highlight that, you know, coaching as an act, right, as a, a type of healthcare support can come from a person who has all sorts of different other training, right? It might be a person who is a nurse by a background or a physician or a nutritionist, um, a psychologist, an education specialist, right? But the notion of a coach being there to help someone implement um, and sustain choices that work for them personally. Because to your point, based, based on what you were just sharing, there could easily be a, a plan of here's how you help your body recover from chemo when it's a booklet and it gets handed out. But as we well know, the difference between presenting someone with a plan and them actually being able to implement it and sustain it in a way that works for them are two totally different things. Right. Um, we, we need help customizing. Well, this is a maybe a, a more antioxidant-rich dietary plan I can move to, but I don't like half of these foods, or I'm allergic to these foods, um, and I have this lifestyle. I don't know how to cook, um, you know, on and on and on. There's all these customizations that people need. Right. They need support with customizing healthy lifestyle changes for their unique needs. Right. Uh, I think that's a particularly powerful tool of coaching. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because um, if if uh, just reading something or reading a book was going to be successful, then there wouldn't be a million diet books out there that everyone just keeps rewriting over and over again. This <laughs> is true. This is true. There's a lot of information. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's, it's actually uh, getting through. Um, one of the things that I really just wanted to highlight, and you know, this is something that uh, I, I do want to, for our listeners, just talk about the fact that, uh, once again, that Tracy has a school and she actually has uh, distinct courses that uh, can be tailored to someone's individual interests. So if you have a particular interest, like in my case in cancer, Tracy has a wonderful comprehensive cancer course that, that just covers so much information. She has other courses as well, you know, depending, you know, a lot on gut dysfunction because that's, that's the basis of just about everything, but thyroid and women's health and migraines and anxiety, depression, you know, whatever brings someone into this area of wanting to look at something more deeply. Tracy has this wonderful comprehensive program where you can just really tailor a program to what your individual interest and needs are. And I just want to mention that um, and, and cannot speak highly enough 
from it. I I want to thank you because it's helping me in my process of becoming of uh, being a recovering ICU nurse because we've talked about <laughs> I look at material and the nurse part of me is like scans it in one way and then I take a step back with new information and new eyes to look at it differently. And you you just uh, teach that so very well. And I also want to say that that people can take an individual course and you don't have to sign up for a program if if, if you know, say cancer is something you want to learn more about. There's there's a way to just take that course if that's your interest. Um, I want to give that website while we have, um, so it's not just at the end when we run out of time. So um, Tracy has built the School of Applied Functional Medicine. Her website is www.schoolafm.com. And it's just got wonderful information on there. Um, but I want to go back to some things that I, I feel like I got the crib notes because I've taken your cancer course. But one of the things that um, that you make very clear is the genetic component. So many people just think that they that it is their genetic destiny to have cancer or to have breast cancer. And it certainly comes up because we now have the ability to test for these BRCA1, BRCA2 genes. And sometimes, you know, women are making choices to do prophylactic interventions because of their family history of breast cancer. So that genetic piece being your destiny is a huge part of the mindset. And I, I know that you can speak to this. So I'd like to like throw that out and have you talk a little bit about genetics, not necessarily being someone's destiny in this area. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And, and certainly something I want to say right up front um, that uh, Deb, you, you well know about me is uh, I really believe in supporting the individual to make the choices that resonate with them the most. Uh, I'm not a judgmental practitioner. I really honor the fact that we all do the best we can to learn um, about what makes sense for us and then make the choices that give us the greatest peace of mind. And uh, I appreciate that cancer in particular is a very scary diagnosis and a diagnosis that can make people feel very alone. Uh, and so something you'll never catch me saying is, well, that's the wrong choice, right? right? Or that's something someone shouldn't have done or they made a bad choice and it caused another problem downstream. I don't judge that. I don't live in those people's shoes. I don't have their belief system. And uh, as you and I have discussed before, Deb, fear is a powerful mediator of health. And it's very important for people to get educated so that they're, they can begin to shift their fears, right, based on some facts. But to some degree, we also have to accept where we are. And making choices that cause someone to be terrified, in my experience, is never going to be in pursuit of your long-term wellness. Um, because the cascade of stress hormones and the, even the placebo effect, but, but all of this downstream physiological distress that is caused by a chronic state of ruminating on fear is never for good. Uh, and so I, I think that I just want to say that right off the bat. But I think to your point around genetics, it's very well understood that our life experience is actually not about uh, our genes. Um, people, uh, this is the kind of thing that doesn't tend to uh, see the light of day uh, in a lot of uh, popular media headlines because there's really no money to be made out of promoting the fact that people can understand their genetics and then make palpable conscious lifestyle choices to ensure their life experience goes in a different way. Right. 
And uh, I like talking about this, um, and I think I've shared this with you before, Deb, but pretty much everybody in my family, other than myself and my brother on both sides of the family, has type 2 diabetes or prediabetes, which doesn't mean that it's destiny that I'm going to get it. It just means I have a certain sort of predisposition, and if I were to kiss by default, make the same lifestyle choices that they all made, yeah, sure, odds are pretty likely that I might eventually progress into the same dynamic. Um, but we're empowered, right? We can make different choices. And, and we well understand in even just in foundational biology now that our life experience is not about our actual genetics. It's about how our lifestyle, our choices activates various genes. Um, and then just having a predisposition for something does not at all mean that we're going to uh, acquire something we might have a predisposition for. I like to say that we live our way. We may inherit a tendency, but we're going to live our way into uh, a disease state. And, and that's not about blaming because sometimes we don't know what those factors are, right? We don't know what those triggers uh, and those drivers might be. But our collective life experience is communicating to our genome. Uh, and, and this is about having a very active dynamic genome, not a, a locked in place um, genome that's operating by default and it, you know, it doesn't matter, no matter what I, get, uh, what I do, I'm going to acquire what my family acquires. That's not the case at all. We don't have, we don't have to go any further than looking at studies of twins who have near identical genes, but based on their lifestyle choices can have dramatically different manifestations of disease or not right. based on the lifestyle that is leveled on top of that genome that activates various genes and not others. Uh, and so I do want to offer that because um, that, again, that's not a far-fetched concept. It's actually very well uh, understood. Uh, and certainly our state of stress our state of uh, inflammation and oxidative stress in the body has a lot to do with which genes are turned on and which ones aren't. Uh, it has a lot to do with our body's perception of uh, threat or safety uh, in our environment. Um, interesting. I do a lot of reading in um, just on traditional sites, you know, very popular sites. And one of the things that, that amazes me particularly this far in my uh, nursing career recovery, as I mentioned. But it's amazing to me that something as simple as nutrition is still being argued, that nutrition doesn't matter. And people uh, are in the midst of chemotherapy and oncology treatments, and they're being told what you eat doesn't matter. And um, I had somebody, a new client, tell me that last week. And I was like, well, you know, we're, we're, still hard pressed to get many doctors to admit that nutrition has anything to do with diabetes. And I think the average person has pretty much made that connection. So something as esoteric as nutrition and cancer may be outside that reference point. It, it's just yeah. amazing to me. And, and I, you know, you, you talked about those lifestyle factors and I'd like to take these last few minutes to really um, highlight what some of them are, you know, so that people can, know, you know, concrete things they can do. And of course, the, the first of that is what you eat and how it affects you and whether it's supporting you or harming you, you know, whether it comes to, and the other thing that comes up is you, you know, the, you talked about diabetes. Well, when you're a cancer patient, you still have to manage other illnesses and very much the same factors that got you to being 
um, someone who's experiencing cancer can it very well be contributing to the diabetes, to um, gut problems, to inflammation. So there's a, that's where functional medicine looks at the interconnectedness. So I just was hoping you could really talk about some of those specific areas for someone to, to look at that they absolutely have control over that can affect their genetic predisposition to express this disease. Uh, yeah, no, and that's a great example. And, and again, even conventional medical research looks at the very high correlation between cancer and other uh, known chronic inflammatory disease. And it's a, a very high correlation between things like cancer and type 2 diabetes. Uh, and I think, um, you know, it's interesting, the notion of nutrition playing a role or not playing a role. I, I tell people um, all the time, practitioners and patients alike, that that the body runs on biochemistry, which is fueled by nutrients, not calories. I'm talking about nutrients. And saying nutrients don't matter is a little bit like saying, I'm going to make a cake. I don't actually care what's in the pantry. I'm just going to throw whatever I find in there, and it's going to all turn out the same. Well, that's crazy, right? We would never say, you know, I don't, I don't have any eggs. I don't have any flour, but I'm going to make a cake. It's just not going to matter. Of course it's going to matter. Um, it's not as though the body has this pantry of nutrients in our left butt cheek, right? It just doesn't. If we don't take in the nutrients that are cofactors for making glutathione, which is by far the most important intracellular antioxidant in the body, we don't make as much glutathione. So we don't combat oxidative stress at the cellular level. So are we going to increase our likelihood of cancer? Absolutely. It's, it's biologically illogical to think otherwise. And so I think what we struggle with is there's not just one pathway for doing it. It's not tab A fits into slot A, right? There's a lot of different foods we can eat. There's a lot of different ways we can get nutrition that we need. And our ability to bring on board nutrition is also based on our digestion and our GI tract. It's, uh, it's not a singular factor. And the conventional scientific method has a hard time with complex, multivariable um, uh, scenarios, right? Where there's a lot of different options. Um, but but I, I think it's true, right? We need to be taking in lots of minerals, right? We need things like selenium and zinc and iron and B vitamins to make glutathione. If you don't have enough of those, you will not make glutathione. Right. There's no other way around it. The body can't just make it up. You're not just going to take out of thin air. It's not going to happen. So we're, we're doing a huge disservice to people by um, having them falsely believe, just ignorantly believing through no poor intention that nutrition doesn't matter. Of course it matters because you can eat a thousand calories of crap and a thousand calories of nutrient-dense foods, and you may get the same amount of calories, mm -hmm. but the difference in nutrition can be basically nothing and something incredibly nutrient-dense. And, and our nutrition guidance at a, at a high level in the popular media is so focused on calories and on macronutrients. What I'm focused on is um, the micronutrients, right? The vitamins, the minerals, the antioxidants, the polyphenols, the things that run the machinery of the body. We do have to have those. Right. And there's a difference between getting the tiny little amount of a nutrient that you need so you don't get a deficiency disease, like, um, like scurvy, right? If you don't get the barely basic a minimal amount of vitamin C, 
which the human body cannot produce on its own, then you will develop scurvy. Well, scurvy is incredibly rare, although not uh, non-existent. <laughs> it's incredibly rare. But there may be a huge difference between the amount of vitamin C that keeps you from getting scurvy and the amount of vitamin C that's going to help you to have optimal antioxidant status in your body. Right. And if I'm trying to not get a chronic inflammatory disease, I want the latter, not the former. Right. And so I, I really think just the fundamentals of giving the body the raw ingredients to run the machinery that naturally helps our cells to work properly, that naturally helps us to fight oxidative stress and inflammation. It's just logical. Right. It, it, there's no hocus pocus science. It's just logical. <laughs> Um, so I, I think that is really key. Uh, and, and the other piece, um, I want to say a moment, I know you talk quite a bit of, with your patients about this, um, is about uh, we live in a modern society that strongly advocates and lives according to the notion of we will always have better living through more chemistry. Yeah. And the more chemicals we can add into our modern day to day, the better off we are. And I'm a chemist by background. And so I get that. I understand fully where that desire comes from. But we are conducting the largest, massive scale, unplanned experiment on the human population's vulnerability to chemicals. Because most people have uh, a really naive perception that somehow chemicals are not allowed in practical use unless they have been safety tested. And that is not the case. It is actually true. This isn't even disputed, right? That less than 10% of the chemicals in widespread commercial use have been tested for safety at all, right? We tend to opt much more that a chemical is innocent until proven guilty. So we're going to use it. And then as we start to see concerns about its safety, then we'll come back and do more testing later on after it's already in use. And you know, as I do, I mean, even people who pay attention to headlines, we've gotten ourselves in trouble um, for that around various medications. We're getting ourselves in trouble with that around various types of pesticides, right? We're starting to see some of the real insidious side effects of things like glyphosate. Um, but, uh, Chemicals are taken in the, in the body and have huge negative burdens on our livers. Um, and we well know that what we don't process really well either hangs out in the body longer than it should and wreaks havoc uh, on, our, on our tissue, uh, or in some cases, especially for lipophilic or fat-loving toxins, we store them in our body and that becomes part of what we call our toxic burden um, for the body. And so, Paying attention to the chemicals that we allow in our lives, I think, is key. Uh, and especially for individuals, thinking about what sorts of personal hygiene products we use. Yes, um, there in Hawaii, for you, it's wonderful that the weather's so temperate year-round and people are very likely to have their windows open with fresh air and all of the things that are outgassing from curtains and carpet and upholstery with uh, flame retardants and stain resistant coatings and all this kind of stuff. These are chemicals and we need to be changing up the air and uh, venting um, those gases out of our homes. So we're not living in and sleeping in that environment all the time, but especially what we slather on our skin. You've heard me say before, Deb, right? We shouldn't put anything on our skin that we would not be willing to eat. 
Right. Not from the perspective of does it taste good or not, but from the perspective of what you put on your skin is absorbed into systemic circulation. And it doesn't even go to your liver right away. What we eat gets absorbed in the GI tract and goes to the liver right away. So the liver can separate the good from the bad and try to sequester certain chemicals and toxins and send them back into the GI tract so that we can get rid of them through the stool or sometimes through the kidneys. But when you put something on your skin and get, it gets absorbed right away into circulation uh, and into our lymph system, it can wreak a lot of havoc on the body before it makes its way to our liver. And even just the simple step of starting to question, what are all these products in my bathroom that I slather on my skin? And where are they maybe not nearly as clean uh, as I think they are? Um, I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, it's been shown that women in particular use, I think it's 21 products uh, from the time they get up to the time they leave the house to go to work in the morning. You know, various beauty or personal hygiene kinds of products. That's a lot of chemical exposure. Right. right. So it's a simple choice. Right. I mean, we could talk for hours about all of the different interventions, but I think even just starting with the notion of are we eating whole, real food, whole, real nutrient dense food? And are we um, protecting our internal body by choosing not to slather on our arms and our face and on our hair these chemical rich products? Um, two very simple, straightforward things that most people don't think about. And one of the things that going back to the food piece that I just, uh, you know, depending on someone's politics and worldviews, you know, the whole issue about organic, I mean, plain and simple, organic is just your best chance of not having poison on your food that you're eating. I, you know, I, I don't care about the politics of it or, or all of that. It is big business, but that's another story. But the fact is, is that we think about what pesticides are designed to do to the plant you know, to, yes. to yield crops for large mass production of food, it's doing the same thing to us. We are organisms, you know, and, and so in terms of organic, I mean, I will say here in Hawaii, um, we, this is a food desert and food can be astronomically expensive, in, um, uh, which in some ways is good because some of the food that probably isn't good for you is too expensive to eat. Like it, uh, uh, a, a gallon of milk can be like $9, you know, yeah. a, a loaf of bread here, like plain white processed bread that probably isn't good for anybody. I looked the other day; it's seven fifty. I don't eat bread, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy it anyway. So in a way, maybe that's beneficial. But um, but just in terms of you know, in terms of very practical things that we can do, I think making just making a conscious choice to become aware of toxins, as you said, skin products or skincare products are a prime source, but so is the food that we eat. If you did nothing yes. else but clean up the food that you eat and buy more organic to the point that you can afford it than less organic, th that's a major, major thing that, that anybody can do for their health. Yeah, and I'm curious, Deb, there locally, especially because, again, you have a more temperate client, uh, climate the year round is, uh, and we talk a lot about this locally uh, here in the southeastern United States, encouraging people wherever possible to check out farmers markets, right, and local farmers, and eating seasonally, and eating what's grown in, in the area of the world you live in. This seems like very logical guidance, but by definition, those things are going to be less expensive right. um, because they're available. Right. Um, and it also helps us to eat things that, by definition, uh, have um, been more likely to be harvested ripe and therefore nutrient-rich. 
and also things that um, are less likely to have been chemically laden um, simply because the reality is pesticides are expensive. And um, most small, especially local family farmers, whether they have an organic certification or not, um, they're really tending lovingly uh, the plants. They've got a much smaller operation and they're, they're really uh, trying to specialize in the art, the husbandry, right, of the plants rather than just about pursuing maximum hybridization and fertilization uh, and large scale production of right. food. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, interesting enough, one of the things here in Hawaii that is more accessible to us than not is good grass-fed beef. There's a huge beef mm. industry here. At awesome. So it is not uncommon when I go into a restaurant to ask them if they have grass-fed beef. And even like the local tech area has grass-fed beef, which is, you know, a huge uh, boom. But that's more accessible than... Um, than some vegetables that, that would come from the mainland. But uh, but you're right, It one of the things people can do is just become familiar with what's grown in your area and what's easily accessible. And of course, that's gonna make it more affordable. You know, um, uh, clearly if something has to be shipped to Hawaii, it's going to be much more affordable than if it can be grown here. But that's the way it is in most parts of the United States. You know, shipping food from one part of the country to another is huge, big business. So if you buy what's local from local farmers, it does tend to be much more affordable, which is one of the main things I hear people say is, oh, it's so expensive to eat well. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, when they make, you know, a bag of Dorito chips, 99 cents. Yeah, it's kind of hard to beat that. But that's big business. And as you said, we all know there's there's a difference between a bag of Dorito chips and, you know, broccoli, you know, or. or yeah. And, and I want to say a word about that as well, because I have some pretty strong thoughts about that. Um, I, I've had the. As a scientist, I'm very observant, and I, I find um, at the end of the day, it's easy for us to complain that anything is expensive or, or more or less expensive than our expectations, right? And I think here in the U.S. in particular, um, we have historically set the expectation that food should be cheap. There are many, many countries around the world who are quite used to the notion that 50% of their household budget or more is going to go toward food. Uh, and it's all about the expectation that's set and individuals who may complain about uh, the cost of eating healthily will also spend a, a dramatically higher percentage of their income on things like um, additional electronics, a new cell phone, a larger wardrobe. Uh, and I'm not criticizing those priorities. I'm just saying we tend to put our money on what we prioritize and what we value. And I, I've had the blessing of, of working with a number of families over the years, even in my own practice, who um, were quite impoverished. And once they understood the power of nutrition, readily made the choice to say, we want to be well. We want our children to thrive. We want to minimize the likelihood of disease so that we can enjoy each other, so we can feel great. We can feel vital. We can be vibrant and happy and active. Um, and, and so we're going to choose to spend money on that nutrition rather than on other things. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, I think we have to be honest with ourselves about, um, as I like to say, we vote with our dollars. We also indicate our priorities with our dollars. What, what matters the most to us? 
So is eating healthily perhaps more expensive than someone would expect or want? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's a choice. And um, we, we end up you know, reaping the consequences or lack thereof of this, the sum total of our choices uh, in life. Uh, and so I think it's an important thing for people to reflect on. Um, you know, where, where are we voting with our dollars, right? Where are we indicating, you know, one $5 bill at a time, what's important to us? Well, you know, interesting in um, the population that I work in, with and that both of us work with, we oftentimes are dealing with people who have been given a serious diagnosis. They're dealing with serious health problems. So sometimes, um, you know, that is the impetus. And unfortunately, uh, the impetus isn't so much on prevention. It's, you know, I, I had somebody who recovering from cancer came in and said, I'm only going to juice superfoods. That's all I'm going to eat for the rest of my life. And I was like, I get it. I, you know, you've had this big scare and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I need to wake up. But, you know, let's, let's talk about not only what's sustainable because, you know, sort of like a, any diet you go on, I'm not, I don't believe that's sustainable, but there's something to be said about the enjoyment of life and eating good food is an aspect that most of us connect with enjoying our lives. And so, um, uh, even though uh, there's can be some of that resistance, it, it's it's unfortunate that people sometimes have to get a serious diagnosis before they they think in. I, I think anybody, in my experience, that has dealt with a serious diagnosis probably would not blink a bit at anything you just said. It's like it's my health. It's my it's my quality of life. Who cares how much money you have if you if you can't walk outside, you know, if you're so I I impaired that you can't get out of bed, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, and to your point, sometimes we we need the wake up call of a fear or a, a suffering in order to make us change our choices, in order to make us uh, shift our priorities. Sometimes we need a wake up call or a fear to even make us aware of the implications of the choices we've been making. And this is where, you know, we could really change uh, the future of the human population by changing the way we educate children yes. about food and nutrition. Because you can't change something you don't understand. I mean, ignorance is a, a huge driver here, right? So sometimes it's only after a diagnosis that people become empowered and inspired to do the research, to, to seek out the additional, more multifaceted healthcare team like yourself, who can point people in the direction of information. Uh, and sometimes, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, people get angry. Like, how come no one's ever told me this before? How come I was allowed to get up to this point? Absolutely. And people have been telling me it doesn't matter and it's mattered all the time and I'm mad. Right. Why was I not given the education to make this empowered choice for myself before it resulted in all of this disability or suffering? Right. Um, right. And I get that. I, I really get that right. completely. Well, um, I could talk to you all day and all week and <laughs> all month. As a matter of fact, I, I, I dream of your voice in my head because I listen to your lectures all the time. So <laughs> um, uh, I, I think probably uh, any of our listeners will probably figure out that I just adore you and I adore the work that you do. So um, in, in closing, uh, this is, I know this is a whole big topic, but I, I just want to put a, you know, kind of an, a highlight on this so often in terms of moving forward from the diagnosis and the treatment, because as you said, 
everyone's going to make that choice based on what they, you know, that's a highly individual choice and it could be more conventional, it could be more alternative or somewhere in between. But what I feel is that some of these um, health issues that we've been talking about in this whole uh, uh, discussion not only play a factor in whether we ever get cancer, but it becomes um, hugely important when we look at moving forward without um, living out getting recurrences and metastasis and, you know, the prevention moving forward. All too often, the treatments that we're given affect our quality of life. Some of the, not many of the meds that we're given leave people with a horrible quality of life, pain and um, dysfunction and an inability to to actually function in their daily lives, and all too often it's dismissed. It's like, well, that's just the way it is. And and I just really want to underscore that the things that we've been talking about are absolute things that we can do because it doesn't have to be that way. You know, quality of life matters, and it seems like um, taking this functional, integrated, um, interconnected approach is the best way to ensure that someone has the best quality of life, regardless of the choices they've made in terms of treatment. So, yeah, because there's, there's, there's really not a lot of clinical studies out there looking at the survival of our quality of life. Right. right? They're looking at whether someone's still breathing. Right, exactly. Um, but, but there's a, like, we, like we were discussing before, there's a difference between uh, adding years to your life and adding life to your years. Uh, those are two different things. And, I, and it's, it's only in the context of a customized individual healthcare support that's about honoring you as a unique person and your choices and your preferences and your life and your goals um, that we're going to be able to provide people with that because a singular PAT solution is not going to work. Um, because we're all different. We're all unique. Uh, and it's, I, I really admire what you're saying. I've supported, as I know you have, a number of people on the other side of whatever type of treatment um, they've chosen. Um, and many people are left thinking, this can't be it. There's no way that on the other side of this, this is the life that I'm going to be living. Um, for the foreseeable future. And, and I would encourage people to have hope that by working with people who can really dive into your unique needs, uh, that you can start to build a, a much better understanding of what your unique body needs and move more toward thriving rather than just surviving. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, when you talk about someone's u- unique needs, I honestly believe that at the end of the day, um, I refer to the the 3 a.m. experience. Um, I was having a, a scare myself, and I was, of course, up at 3 in the morning Googling everything, and my husband came out, and he said, this is the side that people don't see. How many sleepless nights have I seen you trying to find answers because, you know, the traditional doctors that I was seeing were just dismissing it or whatever. So I I really want to end this by just encouraging people to really honor your own wisdom and your own knowledge. Um, And really going back to that unique need, as we talk about all the time in your program, what works for one person is not going to work for everyone. And sometimes that means not following the traditional path. Unfortunately, in the area of cancer, sometimes doctors aren't, aren't big fans of you thinking differently of thinking outside the box and not following the checklist that they have lined up for you. And I think that that's a real challenge for us when we're dealing with cancer, but, but dealing with it as a, 
as a as a life as a lifelong process, right? um, and just honoring you know uniquely it may not it might it it just may not work for you regardless of what all the doctors are telling you. And I think that's where coaching and education and knowledge and all of this can really help you sort through all of those decisions. I agree. Well said. So um, this has been uh, just wonderful to talk to you. I could I, I could take each each piece of what you talked about and make a whole class out of it. But <laughs> we could. It would be fun <laughs> to a large degree. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I always like to ask is that if there's one resource, it could be a book, a movie, a quote, an inspirational piece that you could offer people. What what would come to mind? Um, in terms of, of um, empowering someone? Um, Sorry to put you on the spot, but. Yeah, no, that's a, um, there's a great book by Dr. Lissa Rankin called Mind Over Medicine that I think is educational. Uh, it's a, it's, it's by, penned by a physician. Um, and it really gets to the heart of um explaining and sharing uh, just the huge amount of research that's out there that that shows just how powerful lifestyle choices are in preventing disease, in treating disease, in preventing recurrence of disease. Because as we discussed before, there's not a lot of money to be made, right? And helping someone to sleep better or helping someone to have better peace of mind. No one's going to patent that, right? And so this type of very valid clinical research doesn't tend to make it on medical headlines because no one stands to profit from it overtly. But it doesn't mean the science isn't valid and it doesn't exist because it does. And it's a fabulous book. And, and it's easy to read for anyone, but it's called Mind Over Medicine. And it's by Dr. Lissa. L-I-S-S-A Rankin, R-A-N-K-I-N. And I highly recommend it. Great. It's a great resource for anyone interested in any component of what we've discussed today. Thank you for that recommendation. I've certainly enjoyed presentations and lectures I've heard from Dr. Rankin. So I'll definitely have to add this book to my reading list. And I'll certainly put a link to that in our show notes for listeners who would like to refer back to that. And I just want to Again, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and expertise and passion and warmth and humor and everything that I love about you and everything that, that people really have come to expect from you as a, a leader in this field and as an educator that is so passionate about empowering people around their health. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Deb. With that being said, I'd just like to mention Tracy's program once again, and let you know that I am a student and graduate of the program. So if you have any questions, you can certainly reach out to me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. Tracy offers the education experience through the program in terms of semesters, but she also offers the opportunity for people to take individual classes. And one of the individual classes that she offers is one on cancer and functional medicine approaches to cancer. So I highly recommend that. If you would like to take it further and check that out, please let them know that you heard about it on our podcast today and mention my name, or you can certainly contact me and I can talk to you about it more if you're interested. Thank you so much for joining us and until our next podcast, take care.
Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.